What is it that I can offer as a vendor that no, they can't get anywhere else? Or they can somehow get better than they can get anywhere else? And that's a very important question to answer. And I think for people to think through as the amount of communities and programs and whatnot just continues to expand, there are so many options. So what is your key value proposition that is unique to just you? Alrighty, folks, welcome to another great episode today of the state of customer storytelling. My guests today are Liz Richardson and Dina Zenick, the co-founders and managing partners at Captivate Collective. Liz is an award-winning customer marketer and advocacy executive known for her work in uh, customer engagement methodology. Most recently, uh, she was also VP of customer advocacy at Influitive. And Dina is a pioneer in her field with over 15 years of hands-on experience in advocate marketing and customer engagement. She also co-authored a fantastic book, which I highly recommend, The Messenger is the Message with Influitive and Eloqua founder, Mark Organ. Uh, Liz and Dina, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for having us, Sam. It's always lovely to... Uh... To get to collaborate with you, we're so glad we found you through this customer marketing network that we're proud to be a part of. Likewise, and I always look forward to our conversations and I always you know, evolve my thinking and, and learn a lot and, and all of them. And um, so, yeah, just to kick things off, I guess, for context, you know, I, I wanna, I was thinking about trying to explain to people what Captivate Collective was in the intro but it, it almost, in many respects, I think, defies like a, a neat categorization because uh, what you both do is is so um, you know unique and powerful. So maybe just in your own words, you know, what is Captivate Collective, and you know, what what do you do? Um, you know, who do you help, and and such. I guess I guess I'll take this one. <laughs> uh, so Captivate Collective, we are an agency laser focused on customer advocacy and working with companies who are embarking on their customer advocacy journey or who are mid-flight um, and looking to expand uh, the impact of um, what, they're, what they're doing with their customers. So we typically sit on the strategy side um, with our clients and um, you know we do so because we are always looking to what is the the next best practice how can we help our clients get ahead of um the curve uh with uh customer engagement i love that and and i know on on the website you know right up front you make a really interesting point which is that customer advocacy is a, a practice not a platform tell me uh yeah tell us more like what what do you sort of mean by that well, it's a, it's a strong statement, both of us coming from an advocacy platform uh, provider. Um, but, you know, Liz and I were the first um, two folks on the services team uh, at that provider. And um, what we saw happen over and over again were clients who had made a purchase decision about um, a product before they actually had an advocacy strategy in place. And that strategy is driven by what's most important to the business and executed through best practices uh, that are common across platforms. 
Um, so uh, we believe that the practice of customer advocacy is, is different to the platform. The platform is the channel through which you're executing your strategy, but the practice and the best practices um, sit, in, in, sit outside of the platform and inform um, what you, how you execute on your plan. I like that. The, the phrase too, it's, it's great that it caught your eye, Sam. We find that it's catching a lot of people's eyes, even practitioners who've been in this space for a long time will read that for the first time and kind of have an aha moment of, oh yeah, like, like there is advocacy is not limited to any one tool or channel or anything of the kind, you know, advocacy is a practice uh, and one that we're very passionate about and the tools and the channels and the growing ecosystem around the customer marketing and advocacy space is there to support that strategy. You can choose tools based on, oh, that's a really cool tool. I love how it engages customers or it does this or does that. However, if you don't have the strategy first, you are in danger of trying to create a strategy based on the platform rather than the needs of your organization or the desires and you know engagement style of the audience that you're actually trying to uh, build relationship with. So it's it's you know customer needs first, business needs first. Combine that for a strategy, then choose the tools that will support that strategy, um, and not the other way around. Now, I would add to that as well. Um, for how do we hold up that statement? When we think about customer advocacy inside the organization as a program or vis-a-vis -a, -vis a platform, that's one lens, that's one way of thinking about advocacy. And that's one way for your colleagues and your executives to think about advocacy. When you think about advocacy as a practice and you position advocacy as a practice, a discipline um, that, is, that is guided by best practice, um, I think that you are opening up your scope and potential uh, inside your business to be a real player, to be a real strategic player. You know, not that there's anything wrong with being a program manager. Programs and platforms have a place in the realm of customer advocacy, um, but framing this as a, a legitimate business practice, not a tool. That's a great point, Dina, because if you think about other practices in the organization, they are not associated with a single tool. You know, my role as a customer marketer is not my HubSpot instance, you know, um, my role as a sales rep is not my Salesforce instance. There, there is a practice and as customer marketing and advocacy professionals grow in their uh, prominence in the organization, it is important that people start to see them as the practice and not a specific program or tool. Such a, such a good point. And it's like, it reminds me of this quote. I'm not sure who, who said it, but it was like, you know, of, of methods, there are many, uh, of principles, there are few, right? It's like there's kind of foundational best practices that uh, can be applied in, you know, myriad different ways, but it are almost like, you know, if you don't get the, the foundational principles, right, almost none of the, the tactical stuff matters. Uh, so it's such a, such a key point. I love that. One of, the, one of the other things that I really, you know, that we were talking about it and, you know, right before this is like, you know, customer, how, how customer advocacy is evolving, right? Because like, in, in, I think in some ways we're like in the very much in the early days of, of customer advocacy, but, but also, you know, it's it, it, because it's changing so fast and it almost feels like we're, we're in like a customer advocacy renaissance right now. 
um, or maybe, you know, customer advocacy 2.0. I'd be curious, like given both of your backgrounds in this space, you know, how have you seen that, that evolution from your perspective and, you know, what have been some of the, the hallmarks of, you know, that, that shift from like customer advocacy 1.0 to, you know, now we're seeing, you know, customer advocacy 2.0. Yeah, that's a really good question because you're right, Sam. It's like, it's, it's a old and new practice at the same time in terms of the other practices in the organization. It's a very young player um, and it's still evolving, but in terms of, Hey, you know, now this practice has been around 10, 15, 20 years, you know, depending on how far back you want to look at what it is today. Um, that's enough time for the ecosystem to have changed quite a bit. And that's enough time where, your business, the business layout in general has changed enough that that we are seeing the needs of the organizations changed. A great example, you know, is even with the pandemic and what happened over the last year and a half that has shifted business objectives and engagement with customers quite drastically and has led to some of the prominence or the focus on customer marketing and customer advocacy. So we have been forced to mature, to keep maturing and mature faster um, than maybe we would have. But yeah, so Dean and I's background as practitioners, we were some of the earliest probably in this space, Dina specifically, um, building programs before B2B customer advocacy programs were really a prominent thing, they were more experimental and they were unusual or unique. Uh, we are seeing them come to more prominence and more regularity inside of the B2B space. Um, so if we go back to what we call Advocacy 1.0 and we juxtapose that with Advocacy 2.0, with Advocacy 1.0, there were some very specific things uh, in place with the practice. So first of all, kind of a unanimous consensus that Advocacy was focused um, pretty much 100% on happy customers, right? Um, and it, it was finding your happy customers and utilizing them for advocacy outcomes. And those outcomes were pretty squarely fixated on marketing and sales. And the value proposition was this idea of organizations and the lack of trust with organizations in general. And how are we going to get people to listen to our message if there is an inherent lack of trust with organizations? Who will they listen to? And this shift in, I mean, in human society from trusting institutions to being peer-led because of the connectedness of the internet and social media and whatnot. And so, you know, like Dina's book is called, The Messenger is the Message, the point of how do we get our message across, the people who tell that message being just as important as the message itself. So, so the outcomes of advocacy were really focused on marketing sales to get that message, the message uh, through to your prospects that you would not have the trust to give yourself. And then a couple other factors, you know, the emphasis on one-to-one -one relationships. Uh, so they were typically small programs with a white glove type of engagement. And then also, you know, they were single destination engagement programs. I mean, they were new, there weren't a lot of them. So a lot of these programs um, had a single destination, uh, maybe for everybody, you know, they were more general in approach. Uh, a one-size-fits-all type of approach with Advocacy 1.0.
Um, did I sum that up? Anything I, I'm missing, Dina, that you would add to Advocacy 1.0? 10 out of 10. Oh, Good yes. Pass the test. Pass the test. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, um, do you want to add to that, Sam? Sorry. Yeah, I was, well, I was just going to say you mentioned the sort of, you know, obviously we're post-2020 now and in a hybrid or, you know, often purely remote environment. How how do you think um, or how what have you both seen in in terms of how that's affecting, you know, advocacy and, you know, customer stories and, and all of that. I mean, is it as simple as, um, you know, I know, you know, maybe it's like, you know, gift cards are not as valuable anymore because like people now actually really want like time. It's like time is more valuable than ever because there's always something to do when you're around your house, but yeah, you know, with your kids, with your family, like, so like, I guess how, how is like the remote work kind of changing the advocacy space and and the fact that many, not all of us, but many of us are, you know, working remotely. I, I think one factor, you know, when COVID hit was companies all of a sudden, you know, had this focus on their customers, right? And instead of looking for new customers, it was about how are we going to retain the customers um, that we have. So as the customer, you know, people started to get really quite inundated uh, with communications opportunities, all virtual, right? So um, the whole the idea of sitting through another webinar, maybe not quite as exciting um, as it once was. We've all heard about the kind of wild and wacky world of virtual meetups where, you know, you're learning how to make a cocktail or smelling cheese or, you know, whatever it is, right? Um, lots of really in interesting uh, ideas out there. Um, but coming through that now with people kind of firmly settled into um, their remote roles, what we've seen happen over the last year is a real uptick in um, just kind of sporadic point in time communities that aren't necessarily driven by a vendor. So there are a lot of really great Slack communities um, out there that we've seen pop up that are focused on a practice area, right, which is what customer advocacy programs um, have done as well. So you are uh, a marketing automation professional. I'm the vendor, join my program, learn how to become a really good marketing automation professional. That's one of the benefits. With these Slack communities, they're super diverse, right? Not vendor driven, but still driven by the practice. So folks are getting kind of what, what they need uh, in some ways from those programs. And then there are vendor driven um, Slack communities as well, which are kind of filling that gap. So it's becoming, you know, less gated. So as part of Advocacy 2.0, um, we really talk about ungated advocacy, where it's no longer necessarily about going to a destination and, and being a kind of a card carrying advocate. There are many different ways for customers to interact and participate inside your business, inside your program, inside a platform, outside of it, and outside of your business and in the practice community. Yeah, I agree with that. And to your point, Sam, and to Dina's, you know, this availability, I will call it, of us all to connect at any time, anywhere. I mean, if you even think back five years ago, 
the expectation wasn't that I would just be connecting with people all over the world all the time. The ease of connection is so great. And there's a, a, a lot of great things that come with that. There are a lot of challenges that come with that. So even when we felt like with social media, there was this new space and we were inundated with all this information. So too in vendor relationship, you have some of that same mimicking going on. You have a a lot more programs available now because uh, like Dina said, people are buying into the value of customer relationships as being extremely important. And so everyone knows they need to engage their customers and everyone is thinking about the best way to do that. And so now you as a customer advocacy professional need to understand, well, if I have the desire to connect with my customers, what kind of incentives am I going to put in front of them that will differentiate anything they can get from any other vendor who has a program where they're offering benefits of some kind? And when I say incentives, I, I don't, I know people automatically start thinking of prizes, rewards and whatnot, but I mean, what's the value to me to being part of this? And, um, and so I think with Advocacy 2.0, what we talk about is this need for increased personalization, right? It's not good enough anymore to throw up an advocacy or a customer program and say like, hey, awesome customers, we've got a really cool program for you. You being you, generally you. Um, you. We need now to be thinking more minutely about who these people are as individuals as well. And we need to be personalizing the value proposition of our programs based on more information, more exploration, more data so that we can stand out and offer the most value possible so that our customers are excited about that collaboration because it doesn't feel like we're asking them to do us favors. It feels like we're offering exactly what they want and need. Such a good point. And um, kind of drilling down into like the customer storytelling subset of advocacy, uh, I'd love to hear, because many times that is, you know, I think people's first, um, you know, foray into the advocacy umbrella is often driven by, you know, customer stories and, and, and the need for those. I'm, I'm curious, how do both of you, you know, think about customer storytelling and customer stories specifically as, you know, a part of that overarching, you know, maybe one pillar of the kind of overarching advocacy umbrella or, or a key part of it? I do think it's a key, key part, because when I think of advocacy in in like the the peak of hey what what is an ultimate advocate look like and i will often define that as someone who has connected your brand to their personal brand it is now part of their personal brand story so when your company has been able to identify a need and and insert themselves in the need of that individual not just making that business look great because at the end of the day all businesses are made up of individuals and we all are trying to succeed at something so if i come alongside as a vendor and i am able to fulfill some of the needs of you sam as an individual and to such an extent that that is now part of my personal brand story it is very hard at that point for me to remove that 
story of your your brand out of my personal brand. And now you have ultimate advocacy because our stories are connected. So the connection of stories is a very, very important aspect of advocacy and the honestly the height of where we want to get with advocacy. And I'll add to that, there's a formal storytelling aspect. So nurturing customers, developing relationships with customers, you know, so that essentially they'll go through the process with you to get approval for a public reference, public case study. There's that aspect of advocacy and storytelling. But further to Liz's point, there's the storytelling that happens outside of your formal case study. And those are the impactful stories that happen at networking events, at industry events, when someone posts on LinkedIn that, you know, they need, well, we'll just stick with marketing automation. They need a marketing automation tool. That's where the external storytelling um, with advocacy comes into play. Hopefully you've had some sort of um, moment or engagement with your customer where they've attached their brand to yours. Um, and they're going to retell that story because in telling that story, they're not just sharing the good news about you, you're the vendor. They're also in uh, that moment sharing the good news about themselves and the good news about their relationship with you. That's so true. And it's it's almost, it's like that's the holy grail, right? That, you know, word of mouth, uh, that word of mouth marketing uh, that, you know, you you can't track it. It's sort of like in the dark, but, uh, you know, it, it, it drives the, you know, the biggest, biggest results. Um, it, it's funny that you said word of mouth marketing, Sam, because I was listening to you and I was like, well, good gracious. Are we just, are we just back at word of mouth marketing, which you know is not a new concept that's been around it's for It's not a new concept, but I think in advocacy, it's intentional. Yes. And I think that's what it is. It's you're not leaving to chance. Oh, well, I hope they just have such a great experience and right. that they want to then organically go share their story. Yes. We want them to organically go share their story. Um, but we want we want to lead them to that point of execution, and we want to create the experiences intentionally that lead to that shared storytelling. Absolutely, and it's, so if I'm a if I'm a marketer, a marketing leader, customer marketer who's who's listening to this, you know, and and I'm like, this is great, you know, where do I start, right? Like, can you share a little bit, you know, around? You know how how do how do I get started if I want to maybe I feel like um you know my company maybe we're I feel like we're a little behind or just we need to like kickstart our you know our customer stories our our overall advocacy program you know how how do you think about like getting started and 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 setting a strategy and does it change a little bit based on of course like the size of the company of course and the resources um, available but either way it's like you know how, how do you think about like that really kicking it off and, and setting that, that strategy. It always starts with talking to the customer, always. No matter how much you think you know about your customer, what assumptions you have, what prior interactions you have with your customer, when you're starting to think about being intentional with an advocacy strategy or customer engagement strategy, you need to go out to your customers. And we recommend doing that at two levels. One being a broad survey, um, where you're not just asking, you know, what, how likely are you to recommend us? You're really probing so that you can understand what would be the value that your customer would need to get um, from any sort of, you know, advocacy-related interaction 
with you. How how into gamification are they? Um, does your audience, you know, get turned on by rewards? Um, so there's the broad survey, and then also just one to one. Find your friendly customers and ask for half an hour on their calendar, and probe a bit. Really build out that picture of who your customers really are. So not just a persona on a piece of paper, but who your customers really are. Um, what would they really see valuable um, from their interactions with you? You know, like we really advocate for for moving away from really kind of stale, uh, overused value propositions and ad advocacy, like network with your peers, share the good news about our brand, um, get prizes, right? Like, I mean, they're just used over and over and over again. But really, it's it's just it's superficial, right? Understand who your customers are, understand what the value really is, and then start to build out um, your your strategy from a data informed perspective, right from the horse's mouth. Yeah, as we see that ev evolution of the practice and it becoming more prominent, like what Dina said, it's so important. You know, how can you understand how to motivate your customers if you don't understand what they want? You don't understand what they need. Yeah, yeah, they want a great product. So, I mean, that's where you start. If you don't have a great product, it's going to be very hard to get anyone to advocate for you. But once you're past that, what is it beyond that, that you as an organization can help that person? Uh, what can you do to bring them value as a vendor? You're, you are just a, a vendor. You are a vendor. So what is the gap that you can possibly bring? I always like to call this, you know, what's your no excuse reason that someone would want to join a program with you. What is that? If you're not sure what's that no brainer reason, then you may need to go back to the drawing board to understand, you know, what is it that I can offer as a vendor that no, they can't get anywhere else, or they can somehow get better than they can get anywhere else. Um, and that's a very important question to answer. And I think for people to think through as the amount of communities and programs and whatnot just continues to expand, there are so many options. So what is your key value proposition that is unique to just you? Wow. Yeah. Ton of good stuff there. And that's making, <laughs> making me reevaluate our, and thinking about our kind of customer advocacy, uh, you know, initiatives right now. And, and, and I say initiatives, cause even, you know, with us, you know, obviously we're, we're a startup company and, and such, I, I feel like we, I, I would hesitate to call what we do a program because it, it's just not, you know, that fleshed out or a startup, you know, no one, no single person is like in charge of that. But I'm curious, like, is, is that just, you know, taking companies um, like, like us, for example, like, is that okay for a, a startup? You know, is it like, is it sort of like a progress, not perfection thing? And like, you know, is it one of the things where it's like you can do customer advocacy without an advocacy program, but you know, the goal is to get to a program, I guess. Yeah. How do you sort of think about that for, I guess, especially for, for smaller companies who are like, I get it. I want to do it. I, I don't, the, the idea of a program is intimidating maybe. Absolutely. So a couple of thoughts on that one first. We will always say that even before a program, there is a mindset, you know, mm. we call it the advocacy mindset. Um, and so if your the culture of your organization is set around 
seeing and looking for opportunities to play into the needs and desires of your customers to create those relationships and to bring forth those stories you can already do advocacy initiatives, right? So instilling that mindset and that culture in your organization is a key part of it. And that's something you can start today. But then secondly, you know, can we get started if we don't have a a major formal program? Yes, absolutely. And we also see that um, as a part of even thinking about advocacy 2.0, you know, beyond formal programs, what is there? Now, Now that the, this, area has expanded, this practice has expanded, what is there beyond just formal programs? What about all the people who aren't even ready to join a formal program? So whether it's just because you don't have it or because there's a whole bunch of customers who aren't interested in another login, another membership, how are you going to reach those prospective advocates who may not think of themselves even as advocates, but are still um, more than willing as you know, enthusiastic friends of your organization, we call them friendlies, to go ahead and do something that they find um, valuable in that moment or worthwhile in that moment. So one of the things um, we like to help clients think through is, you know, where along the customer journey, where can you align advocacy naturally along the customer journey? When is an appropriate time to ask for a review? not just appropriate, but opportune. Like it makes sense in the customer's mind that they are being asked for a review at this time, or there is some sort of, you know, give and take that makes sense in their mind. Oh yes, I just got a lot of value. So it makes sense that I would want to give value back because that's how we are wired as human beings. When we receive value, we feel the need to to give value as well. So it is very so it's interesting, Sam, because your question might be like, oh, like what's for a less mature organization? What can I do? But what we see is a lot of the mature organizations have been focused on programs and less so on the alignment of advocacy to that customer journey. And we really advocate for um, thinking through that customer journey and building the advocacy journey in alignment with that. And so you can create a simple process around a milestone moment that will get you some of those early results, help you identify who some people, where some people are at in their advocacy journey with you and allow you to start building some key places to build that, either build that relationship or to cull some great outcomes that are valuable to both you and hopefully the customer as well. I'm sure Dina has more to add to that. Well, you know, I just, I love that that you started off there, Liz, with the advocacy mindset, because that really is something that anyone can do. It's just about getting people together and making sure that you're aligned on what your mission is and what your what your desired experience for your customers is and how you all work together towards that. I mean, at, at just a very basic level, if if people are tuned in, if you're all reading from the same page of the same book, you know, why not just empower your CSMs, give each of your CSMs a little slush fund for just surprise and delight at their discretion, right? Like not a lot of barriers, not a lot of boundaries, but just starting to lay the foundation for a different level of customer engagement and experience. So you can start really small. Hey, I mean, I started with a spreadsheet. So you can <laughs> you can start just with what what you've got and and as Liz said figure out who those customers are who 
might already be on that path with you and then start to uh, nurture, nurture them and go for the right ask at the right time. I love that. And, and yeah, speaking of, you know, starting with a spreadsheet to the, to the first point that we were talking about, you know, it's like you said, it, it's about the, the principles, you know, you know, and, and the best practices and the, the tools are sort of, it's like agnostic, right? Uh, as long as you have that in, in place. And obviously that's, you know, what both of you, you help, you know, your clients with. And I, I'd also like, I note, and speaking of like advocacy 1.0 versus 2.0, uh, Liz, you mentioned sort of like the buyer journey, I would put forward, I, I'd posit that that could be another, you know, big hallmark between maybe advocacy 1.0 and 2.0 is like, you know, more of like a full buyer journey approach to customer content creation and dissemination. Whereas, I mean, I feel like there used to be sort of like, at least for um, content, you know, sharing, it was like, okay, like the buyer is like almost over the, the finish line. Let's Let's hit them with the the best like customer case studies and, and video testimonials at that point to push them over the line. Whereas like uh, what what I'm seeing and you know is like now is that it's like buyers want to self consume, you know, uh, content from other customers throughout the entire buyer journey, and they want to kind of self serve, and they want to consume different things based on their you know stage. It's not like the one size fits all kind of like monolithic kind of case study approach that maybe, you know, we, you know, we used to see in 1.0, right? Yeah. And I think there's also that, that pre-sale advocacy piece where any interaction that that prospect is happening with your company, your content, your people, the person that you call up for that reference, you know, as you, as the, as the deal is really getting close to the finish line. All of those interactions have the potential to build advocacy before that deal's even closed. In a way, when you're bringing in a, a reference to speak to that prospect close to the finish line, you're showing them what it's like to be an advocate for the company because your reference is performing an, an act of advocacy. When they're interacting with your salespeople, what does that feel like? What um, aspects of nurture are built into that experience with the salesperson? So yeah, I mean, we totally believe it all starts from those you know early touch points with the business, and what we do with them um, is often overlooked. We don't really consider the the full scope of the the customer experience until they've signed on the dotted line. But to your point, what I think you're saying, Sam, is you know even like the type of content that's used in that buyer journey is likely um shifting <laughs> there the 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 typical you know one two three and you know they get to the very close line and they got to do a reference <laughs> they got to do a one-to-one -one reference call um even some of that is changing right because how we perceive authenticity and trustworthiness is changing. And so anything almost sometimes coming from a vendor, even a one-to-one -one reference, we're kind of skeptical, right? Because we're like, eh, we know you picked that reference. So obviously they're not going to say something terrible about you. Even how we coach our references. This is a big debate in some places, right? Should we ask people for five-star reviews? <laughs> you know, should we ask sales references to, you know, please share this, this, and this, and make sure that this comes out and whatnot. You know, it is so tempting, but I, I do think we as buyers are becoming so savvy that we we almost distrust now too much 
positive reaction. I am a weird person I've noticed. Like even when I'm going to go choose a book, I read through so many reviews. I am like very in tune with what do other people feel about this? Was this worth their time? And if I just see a ton of like five stars after five stars, I'm a very skeptical mindset. My skeptical mindset says, hmm, I wonder if the author gave away like a ton of books um, in in exchange for some reviews. Like we we really are, are trying to sniff out any scent of inauthenticity and and um you know we want to make our own decisions and we won't don't want to be manipulated into thinking this or that so where the practice is going as far as storytelling like how we get customers to tell our story i think we're going to have to put some thought into that right because it's not going to be enough just to get case studies or even reviews as reviews you know reviews are really hot right now but man I mean, there's a point in anything where they lose their power, right? That if, when you have too much um, inundation of something, you, you, it's going to lose some of its power. So reviews and, and one-to-one references and webinars, we're already seeing webinars come start to come down. All of these typical forms of content that we're used to generating with the support of our customers, I do think we're going to have to start thinking more and more savvily. How do we let customers tell their stories? And how do we get more and more out of it, probably as vendors, because any sniff of the vendor relationship can can bring some murkiness to that water. So I don't have any answers today on like what all the different types of content are going to be. But I do think you're right in the sense of that's going to have to um, go through some innovation as well. And, And that's great for customer advocacy professionals, because that's going to be a problem that we can help solve. Well, thanks for answering the question that I didn't answer, Liz. No, I think you answered part of it. I wasn't exactly sure what Sam was asking, (laughs) but I I think I I, I think it's like a combination of what both of us answered. That is what Sam asked. Oh, yeah, no, that's not. That wasn't my answer. Yeah, no, I I love both of those answers, and I mean, maybe I'm I'm a little biased, but I also feel like that's where you know, video kind of you know, you can't talk about authenticity and content without you know mentioning video right and i think you know to a lesser extent audio but but i totally agree like when i uh when i go on amazon it's the 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 amazon reviews are almost almost pointless because what product on amazon doesn't have like 4.5 star reviews like Mm -hmm. it's just you know so to me that and, and, and I'm curious what uh, both of you think about this is like, is that where, you know, in the future, is that where we see, you know, and I'm it's not a cut and dried answer, but like, is that where we see more video because like you can get people's tone and you can kind of read their facial expressions and you can just uh, on, on, you know, video testimonials, video, customer videos, or is it also that, you know, and I'm sure it's both. It's like the n- new mediums and new formats of text, if we're going to keep doing text, have to kind of evolve. Uh, as well. Yeah, I think what's what's evolving with video in particular, Sam, is just the full scope of the types of video, you know, reference material that we're seeing out there, you know, from kind of the big production on site with a crew approach to a fully remote approach to almost more of kind of like a, a news feed kind of style uh, approach and each of those types of video, um, I think, play a very distinct role um, for different buyers, different markets at different points in their in their cycle. And each, um, to Liz's point, 
each instills or evokes um, a, a different level of trustworthiness when thought of together as a suite of video interactions. I think they're most powerful. I do think it is novelty too, right? Like um, written word has been around for <laughs> like the beginning of time. <laughs> and video is still pretty in, a pretty new medium. Like, and it, it's still like the, the art of video is still evolving in my mind. And a lot of people are still very uncomfortable with it. You know, we all write to some extent, but I think we're going to see a huge shift as people have been on all these remote meetings. They are now getting used to seeing themselves on camera as continually painful as it is, but there is going to be some level of familiarity with video that just did not exist two years ago. And so it will be interesting to see how the adoption rate of video and, and now, like if we're to bring it back to advocacy, you know, will you have more customers willing to participate in video opportunities, whether they are formal, you know, it's all it's still a great thing to have yourself in a formal, beautifully produced video. It's like seeing yourself in a movie to some extent, you know, it's kind of like fulfilling some kind of fantasy, by the way, intrinsic motivator. But there's also this idea of, you know, I, I maybe I'm just comfortable putting out ad hoc content now that I, I wouldn't have been willing to do before. And so how do we tap into this moment in time when video is becoming more acceptable? Not it's always been acceptable. It's always been quite stunning, but it's more acceptable. Like I'm willing, I'm willing to put myself out there knowing that, you know, just like things on the internet videos, you know, they get passed around and they can live forever. So, but, but people just have a greater comfort level in it. And, um, and people are really receptive right now. I think right now is a good, really opportune time for video because you're on that cusp, right? Where it's still something that catches your eye that you stop for in a news feed that you're willing to kind of click that button and invest. Um, but we're not to the point of saturation where, oh my gosh, everyone is doing a video in every post, right? It'll be, it'll be really interesting again to see how, how that goes and, and where video maturates to in the near future. Such a good point. And um, before we, we close it out, uh, what, what else, what haven't I asked? Any other tips or, you know, uh, perspective that, you know, either of you would share with, would like to share with the audience of, you know, uh, marketers, marketing leaders who want to kind of, you know, do more when it comes to customer advocacy and, and customer storytelling? I think for practitioners now, is the time. There has never been a better time to be a customer-focused, customer-obsessed marketer. And if this is your cup of tea, if you want to really build a career in this space, this is the time. And you're going to make moves um, by positioning yourself as um, a strategist, uh, you know, not a, not a program manager, a strategist, aligned to the strategic priorities of the organization, talking the talk, understanding the C-suite, and, uh, and moving your way through the, the organization. This is the time to do that. And that's a good one. Um, and then one tip we often like to speak to is customer loyalty programs in B2C have been around for a long time. There, there's nothing really new about that. That's been around since the late 1800s. That is a practice that has evolved and, and iterated itself and has a really strong hold now, especially since the 80s and, and on. 
you know, shout out to Blockbuster for making it exciting to be part of a loyalty <laughs> program. But, you know, they are not the same practice by any means. It's very different relationships that happen between B2B and B2C. But there are so many great lessons to learn from B2C. And, you know, as, as you watch B2C evolve in personalization and scale and relevance, those are things you can look at your experience as a B2C or as a consumer and say, why do I, why do I keep coming back to this loyalty program? Why do I use this app on a regular basis? Oh, cause it's so freaking easy. It makes sense. It doesn't make sense not to. So, you know, there are some lessons to be learned and brought over to the B2B side, which is a less mature practice right now, but use your own life. And then Dina will say this often is like, you know, put yourself in the shoes of your customer or as, as a consumer, as someone who is, um, someone who interacts with vendors and brands all the time, you know, what really makes sense? Why would you be a part of something like this? What would be a value to you? Um, if you can, you know, walk a mile in their shoes, you're bound to create a much more engaging uh, program with longevity. Because right now what we see is a lot of people are launching programs. Uh, a lot of people's programs are dying as well. Um, and so you need to have the underlying strategy of why, why would someone do this? Why would someone be here? And what are the barriers that we unthoughtfully put in place that keep people from continuing their advocacy journey with an organization? I love that. And that I think is, is the perfect bow to kind of put on this and to tie it all together. You know, so last but not least, um, Dina, Liz, uh, where can people uh, get in touch um, who want to, you know, learn more about, you know, you connect with both of you, connect with, you know, Captivate. What's the best way to do that? I was going to say, I'm so happy to say you can now go to our to new, our newly revamped website because now I'm finally okay sending people to our website. So that would be www.thecaptivatecollective.com. Um, but I think Dina was about to say LinkedIn is where we do a lot of our interaction. So following Captivate on LinkedIn is one of the best ways just to keep like we we are trying so hard to keep new content coming all of the time um, to really get practitioners in this space thinking like thinking hard um, and and really being the pioneers of that advocacy 2.0 that we see um, coming upon us. And so LinkedIn is definitely a great way to connect with us. Amazing. Well, if this has been a blast, uh, I'm sure we'll have to do a uh, episode two sometime. Uh, but thank you, Dina. Thank you, Liz. Uh, appreciate you both uh, jumping on here today. Thanks for having us, Sam. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely, Sam. Always a pleasure. Alrighty, folks. That was a fantastic episode with Dina and Liz. Uh, some of the things that we really hit on, you know, uh, the right, you know, pra best practices, right strategy from the beginning advocacy 1.0 versus uh, 2.0 and, and the differences, um, how remote work has changed things, in particular, you know, people's you know, familiarity and just willingness to kind of do more video, starting with talking to the customer. Like, you know, if you're starting your program, go out there and talk to customers. You know, what would the value that you would need to get out of that interaction be? And what's your no-brainer reason why someone would participate in your program? That two-way exchange of value. And and then last but not least, like that advocacy is a mindset. It's not a binary yes or no thing. 
know, it, it's a mindset and, and you can start today, no, no matter where you are, you, you can, you know, instill that mindset into the culture of your company. And as always, this is the State of Customer Storytelling podcast. I'm Sam Shepler from Testimonial Hero. And uh, if you have anyone that you'd love to hear uh, on the podcast, shoot me an email. My, my email is sam at testimonialhero.com. I'd love to hear from you. And um, until the next episode, have a fantastic time and good luck on all of your advocacy initiatives and programs. Mm-hmm.